I'm convicted that the partial life that we attempt to live whilst continuing to live the lives that we once knew before we knew Christ is neither sufficient for us nor is of any use to this world. It's neither sufficient for us nor is it of any use to this world. And we must recognize that this world is passing away and everything in it. It's the message of the Bible. Uh, I don't know whether this comes as news to you, but it's the truth. This world is passing away and everything in it. God is making all things new. He is making all things new. And you know what? You and I, if we are in Christ, we're the first fruits of that new creation. We're the first fruits of that new creation. So let's start acting like it. Let's start acting like it. Let's start acting like it. Let's not act like somehow we are anything to do with what has passed away and is passing away and will soon be no more. We are not of this world. We are not. We must ask ourselves and ask ourselves and ask ourselves daily, is what I am investing myself in, are the achievements of my life, if we dare call them that, are they things that will continue into eternity? Do they have any value in crafting the character of Christ in my life and enabling another to see that character? The lives that we build, the things that we invest ourselves in, the way that we use our time, even the empires that we build, though they be ever so large and impressive, have they anything to do with the coming kingdom? Have they anything to do with the coming kingdom? We must ask ourselves these things. The truth of the matter is that we see glimpses of glory, moments of the kingdom of God, but that the overwhelming weight of evidence is that we still find ourselves betwixt and between. We live, as it were, in a halfway house, recognizing the call of God upon our lives, that we have been made new by the wonder work of the cross, and yet we don't live marked by that cross. We talk of the cross, but we're not marked by it. We talk of the cross, but the things that we heft in our lives, they don't look like the cross. The call of Christ Jesus is to take up our cross, which means to die. It means to die to the self. It means that nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit should mark our lives. That's what the scriptures tell us. You know, this evening, our plan and our purpose is to consider something of the coming of Jesus Christ. Realistically, if we allow for our consideration to be in these fleeting moments alone, then it will not be enough. It will not be enough. The consideration of the coming of Jesus Christ must be the thing that is foremost on our minds when we wake, and it must be the last thing we consider when we go to our beds. The fact that Jesus is coming again ought to be the first criterion on every decision-making list. It ought to be the first purpose of our lives. That we long for the coming of Jesus. We long to see him. We long to be united with him. We long to be like him. For we will see him as he is. And he will complete the work of salvation that he has begun in us. This is the very reason why he's sustaining us and keeping us until his coming. This is what he wants to complete in our lives. Do you want him to complete it?
Well, then live in that direction. I want to read to you a couple of passages of Scripture that hopefully, hopefully will point us in the direction of the coming of King Jesus. Uh, my hope, my aim this evening is that we might be captivated by something better than anything this world could offer. And in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, John, who is receiving all of this insight and wisdom and vision of God, in verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's incredible. It's astounding. It's profound and it's powerful. And there's much that we can say. Uh, and the truth is, uh, this evening there's going to be much that we leave unsaid. Don't worry about that if we don't answer every question or address every detail. We are going to be spending a number more weeks in this book and other books like it. It's worthwhile recognizing that these saints who have come out of the great tribulation, committed to God, made white in the blood of the Lamb Christ Jesus, when we hear this word tribulation, I know many of us in Christian circles, our minds, talk, you know, they turn instantly to, to thinking about that great tribulation. But I, I want to remind you um, that right at the beginning of this book of Revelation, John describes himself as a brother, as a partner in tribulation. And the recognition is that whilst there may be a great tribulation to come, tribulation is something that ought well to mark those who are following hard after Jesus. It is more common than comfort for those who are seeking Jesus earnestly and allowing their lives to be shaped into his likeness. The evidence of the Bible is incredibly plain. The evidence of Christian history is incredibly plain. That for those who seek God, trouble is more common than not trouble. It's the way of it. 
sought to get us thinking. If there's no trouble in our life because we're becoming more like Jesus, no trouble in our life if we're sharing Jesus more fully, more freely, more wonderfully, more lovely, more graciously with those around us, if there's no trouble because of these things, then we are out of the ordinary. We're abnormal. And that ought to give us cause for concern. It ought to give us cause for question. This is in the midst of this incredible image, this wonderful picture of a great multitude, people from absolutely everywhere. I want to turn you forward in this book to Revelation chapter 21. And in these uh, words, these verses, John shares again some visions of what it is for God to be with his people, these people that we've started to see in chapter 7 of this book. I'm just going to read a few verses from the chapter. And John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Just before we move on, it's worthwhile recognizing that John is not only called to hear these things and to see these things, but to write these things down so that they may be conveyed. Can I say to you, grab a Bible. Grab a Bible. If you've not got one in your hands right now, grab one. And look at the words. Read them for yourselves. They're scattered all around the building. Concern yourselves with the Word of God. Concern yourself with the Word of God. Don't take my word for it. Don't just listen to these things. How scrupulously are you considering the things of God? Are you marking these things down so that you might attend to these words as the week progresses? Are you doing so? Are you doing so? John was called to write these things down. It's so that people might read them. Verse 9 continues. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. There's more detail that follows, but we're going to jump ahead to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In these verses, we see an incredible picture of of many things that will be in, in the new creation. 
in the new heaven and the new earth where God is and God is with his people. And we could spend, well, we could spend an age considering all the things that are there. Truth of the matter is, centrally, we need to recognize that God is present. And actually, what I want you to consider for a moment is because God is present, what is absent? What is absent? What is absent? So many things. We've just read that nothing unclean will be in the presence of God, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, even to the extent that there will be no night there. Darkness cannot be present where God, the very light of the ages, the light of the world, is present. Because God is present, what did we hear? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning. No more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Even in these brief passages, in the brief time we have this evening to consider them, we start to get a sense that the world that God is crafting, the world that God is going to create, the future things, the things that are to come, will look in some senses similar to what we have now, but in so many ways utterly and completely different. The truth of the matter is you and I will look utterly and completely different. For we'll be glorious, even as God is glorious. This evening, I want us in our considerations to start to look in that direction and please God to live in that direction. We can easily fall into the trap, living as we do in the here and the now. Forgetting to live towards our future of living in the moment we may live hopefully in the moment or we may live desperately in the moment but we live all too often in the moment on November the 22nd in 1963 three incredibly influential figures in world history certainly 21st century history passed away all on the same day and they're pretty instructive for us Uh, The most famous of the three, probably, and for those of you who are keen students of history, you might know that date pretty well, but the most famous of them was the president, JFK. And he was a man who, in the brief time that he had in office, he spoke of hope. He spoke of the possibility of a better future. He was an optimistic politician, a hope-filled politician, but a hugely flawed human being. And we will never know whether he stood a chance of actually leading either his country or the world at large into the future that he promised. But on that same day in history, two other figures passed away. The other of the the three was a man named Aldous Huxley. He was a writer. And he wrote science fiction. Don't fall asleep straight away. I'm not going to read any of it to you. But he wrote science fiction. Uh, I can see a couple of science fiction fans. He is terribly disgruntled at that. But uh, he wrote science fiction, but from a very dystopian perspective. The truth of the matter is he couldn't see much of a future for humanity. He had no sense that humanity had any possibility of a future that was anything other than us satisfying our desires. And sometimes satisfying our worst desires or our deepest and lowest desires. Now JFK with hope, not much more. Aldous Huxley with not much hope at all. But the third figure to pass away on that day was a guy who went by the name of Clive Staples Lewis. And that name might not seem immediately familiar to you. The truth is because he's C.S. Lewis. 
And that's how you ordinarily would know his name. And it's to this man who died just a week before his 65th birthday in 63. It's to that man, the C.S. Lewis, who described himself as the most reluctant convert to Christianity, yet who others later described as the most thoroughly converted man you could ever meet. It's to him that we could turn to get a better vision of humanity, to get a better vision of our potential in Christ, but specifically of our destination and our satisfaction in Jesus because he knew where his home was. And I tell you, though he taught in Oxford and Cambridge, it wasn't there. Though after many, many long years, he found a a joyful, albeit short-lived marriage to his wife, Joy, that wasn't his home either. Though he was lauded and fated by those in academia and in the church, though his fame lives even to this day, his home is in none of those things. He knew that his home was with Christ in eternity. Thanks be to God, he's in the presence of Jesus even now. And in what we've read, we see the beginnings and the fullness of what it might look like to know that home, the return of Jesus. And we saw a new city, a city that's described as a holy city, new Jerusalem. The truth of the matter is in the Bible that the existent Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the Bible, of history, and even to this day, it's rarely called a holy city. Very infrequently. And when it is called a holy city, it's normally looking ahead to when it will be made holy. In Joel, the prophet, in chapter 3 and verse 17, he he asserts that Jerusalem will be holy. And here we see the fulfillment of that, that Jerusalem will be a holy city when it is the new Jerusalem. This reminds us profoundly, distinctly, that we're not looking at what can be achieved by us, by humanity. Sometimes we get so enamored with what was or what is that we fail to realize that our faith is a faith that is ultimately focused on what will be. It is on what will be. Are we people of yesterday? You can't live there. Are you people of today? It'll soon be past. Or are you people of tomorrow? Are you people that recognize that Jesus is coming again? You're future focused. Where is your destiny? It's where we should make our home. The Jerusalem that was, even in the best days of Israel, is not our hope. The Jerusalem of today is not our hope. But the new Jerusalem, that is what we are ultimately to long for. Do we long for what is to come and this new Jerusalem is holy made holy by our God and in chapter 21 we saw how this new Jerusalem has been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband the the imagery of marriage is one that is very common in the Bible marriage marriage is actually an image uh, as much as it is a thing that we get to enjoy now it's quite commonly said that marriage isn't meant to make you happy, it's meant to make you holy. There you go, that's your first bit of marriage counselling. See you later this week. It's not meant to make us happy, it's meant to make us holy. And as much as it should be infused with joy, just as we know when we are united with Christ for all eternity, it will be absolutely stuffed with joy 
as much as we know that, will also be the, the beauteous presence of the holiness of God. And because of that, the absence of everything else. And here, it realistically, are the two things that I want us to consider this evening. When we think of that beautiful union, the bride adorned for her husband, you know, we know scripturally that this imagery speaks to us of the bride as the church of Jesus Christ, the people that he is preparing for himself. Of course, the groom in this picture is Jesus himself. And when we think of this marriage, when we think of this union, I want to ask you, is that what you are longing for above all, before all, in all, and at the end of all things? Is this the absolute and utmost longing of your life? And if so, are you preparing for it? This bride is described as being prepared, adorned for her husband if you were to read all of the chapter as it is described you'll see that that, that this holy city is beautiful it shone it was glorious it was glittering it was amazingly fashioned it is an incredible picture that is presented to us and in this presentation of this picture as well as considering the longing I want us to consider the preparation we were to think about a, a wedding as we know it in the here and now and neither longing nor preparation on their own is enough if all the preparations were made ready for a wedding but there wasn't much longing well everything might run like, run like clockwork but it'd be a pretty cold affair wouldn't it if there wasn't any longing undergirding the preparation then I don't think you would give the marriage very long would you after all the preparations are done and dusted well then where's the heart where's the, where's the passion to carry it forward but if it's all longing and no preparation then it would be haphazard on the day at best and equally you might not think very things would continue very well into the future we know that a wedding requires both longing and preparation Is your second bit of marriage counselling so does a marriage it requires both longing and preparation. Neither one nor the other is enough. Christians, when we consider the coming of Jesus into our world, the union that he is crafting for us, are we both longing for it and are we preparing for it? Jesus spoke endlessly about the preparations that would be necessary. He talked endlessly about the coming kingdom and he invited you to give everything, sell everything, surrender everything, sacrifice everything that you might have the kingdom of God. He invited you to work while it was still day because the night is coming when no one can work. He exhorted you to keep your uh, oil ready in your lamps so that you will be prepared for the day of the coming of the groom. Over and over again, God invites you to long for this and to prepare for it, to prepare for it and to long for it. And these things must be woven together in our lives. Do you long to be united with Jesus at the end of all things? And are you preparing for that longing to be realized when he comes? If not, can I share these words from John Piper to bring us up short? If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. 
Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. You might be wondering why I mentioned C.S. Lewis before. Well, here's the reason. Because Pastor Piper there is echoing the words of C.S. Lewis from mere Christianity when he said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you but they can never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Uh, Lewis continues, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. You know, I stand before you this evening as a man who I recognize is immeasurably blessed. It might be that sometimes you, you see me stand before you and seek to open the scriptures to you and it might be in your heart you say, well, that's all well and good for you to say, Pastor Greg, you have it easy. And truth is, in many ways that I do, I am blessed. I'm blessed in my family. I'm blessed in my wife. I'm blessed in my kids. I'm blessed in many of my circumstances. I'm blessed in this church. I'm blessed in the calling of God upon my life. I'm blessed in the fact that I am loved and redeemed by my Savior and filled with his Spirit, who is a, a sign, a seal, and a guarantee of my salvation until the coming of Jesus. For me, I am blessed in many ways. I stand before you with pretty good health many other blessings besides I have a roof over my head and food on my table I know that I am blessed if I ever allow these blessings to be the focus and the purpose and the heart of my life then you can say it's all well and good for you Pastor Greg because then absolutely I will have lost my way I give thanks for these earthly blessings but please God they remain to point me towards what is ultimate that other country Erin and I know that when we're in heaven, the unity that we share one with another will pale into insignificance compared to what it will be to be united with Christ. Marriage lesson number three. You're made for God. My heart's desire is not to surrender my kids into adulthood that they might enter into this world and be a part of this world. My heart's desire is to surrender them into the hands of a loving saviour. The one thing and the one thing that I long for is that I'll see them in eternity and they'll be part of that union with Christ. That's the only thing that I want for them. Well, I want some other things, but that's the ultimate thing that I want for them. And we live in a country that is eating itself alive with its sense of self. 
and all the debates that rage around our country about who are we and what is our place in this world. I do not care what the place of this country is in this world. I care that this country finds itself having a place in another country that is to come. Anything else is up for grabs. And I do not care. I do not care. And if you find yourself consumed with the caring of the things of this world, accept that you care that everything ought to be pointed towards Christ, journeying towards Christ, and everybody given the truest and fullest opportunity to go toward Christ, entering into his embrace, then you're caring about the wrong things. We are made for another country, but your neighbors are made for another country as well. Will you leave them here? Will you leave them in this country? It is not good enough. This country, for as long as God permits it to exist, is halfway decent. But it is still passing away. We're made for another place. Do you long for it? Have you allowed the awakening of those desires that cannot be satisfied in the things of this world? That you can't satisfy an experience, that you can't satisfy in the accumulation of wealth, that you can't satisfy in relationship one with another, that nothing, no ecstasy, no joy of this world can satisfy. You were made for another country. You were made for the loving embrace of your God. You were made to be united with him. Is there anything that is holding you back from that union? Anything that is holding you back from that embrace, surrender it, submit it, give it up, put it to death. You're made for another place. You know, when we wish to understand the promise of our eternal home, to be with God in the place of his perfect making, and doesn't it sound so good? Who doesn't want every tear to be wiped away from their eyes? I don't want to cry another tear. I know that the days that I spend on this earth will be marked by tears because there's much to cry about. I don't want to weep anymore. I want God to wipe away my tears and I want to walk into his blessed rest. Who doesn't long for this? Who doesn't long for the day that death shall be no more? Who doesn't long for the day that they don't have to bury any more people? Who doesn't long for the day that they don't have to sit with people and describe the only hope that they have in this life or the next, but not know whether the words are landing in a person's mind or their heart? I see the fear of death in people's eyes, and yet their their minds are so blinded to truth. Who doesn't long for the day when there is no more death? I want people to come with me into the newness of life. Who doesn't long for the day when there shall not be any more mourning? no crying no pain anymore hey I bet there are some of you here that could do without pain hey have you been wrestling with it this week come on your hope is heaven point yourself in that direction it may well be that the pain of today is the grace of God that you might be pointed yet more truly towards heaven don't waste your pain don't waste your pain It's meant to point you towards heaven when there will be no more pain. And the former things have passed away. When we wish to understand the promise of this eternal home, to be with God in the place of his perfect making, to be with God having been made perfect according to his working, 
then we have to realize that we will neither understand that home nor fully orient our lives towards it unless it is the primary longing of our lives. Stop splitting yourself in two. Stop longing vertically and horizontally at the same time. You're tearing yourself apart. Stop longing for things that aren't leading you towards Jesus. You're tearing yourself apart. It must be the primary longing and the longing which orders all other longings because the longing to be at home with the Lord which is far better than being in these faltering bodies. That longing is a longing for Jesus. He is the one who makes our home and he is the one who invites us into it. Can I encourage you for a moment? The longing that I'm calling you into this evening, that the scriptures are calling you into, that is the longing that God has for you. Please God that our spirits might be quickened to just a percentage point of the longing that God has for you. He, being the Alpha, as the scriptures have called him to us, he is your creator and the creator of all things. He is also the author of your salvation. And he is the Omega. That is the end. He's the completer of the work and the one who will receive you to himself if you are in him. He has been working all things together in all of fallen human history and even before to accomplish this glorious end. If he so longs for you and for you to be with him, and come on, remind yourself, he painted this longing so vivid for you with his blood upon a cross. That's how much he longs for you to be with him. That he was willing to give his life, every ounce of it, every breath of it, every drop of it. He gave it for you. That's how much he longs for you. If he longs for you so, then shouldn't we long in return? What else is worthy of your life? Your life which Jesus gave his life to buy for himself. One last thought from Mr. Lewis for us this evening. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Can we make it plain? There is no way in this world that we can know what is the best of our lives. Now some would tell you that you can have your best life now. Far from it. To suggest as such means that they don't understand heaven at all 
They have a very poor vision of it. And they entirely lack in comprehension of the purposes of God in their lives and for all eternity. To be one with God is your best life. And this season now, though it be marked by sorrow or it may be marked by joy, is something that is passing away. It is passing away. There'll come a day, and it may come sooner than we expect. There'll come a day when we stand before Jesus with nothing. We came into this world with nothing and we'll leave it with nothing. Everything that we've sought to make of our life in the here and now will be gone. The only thing that will remain is if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. If we're embraced in the loving arms of God if we journey toward him with the faith that enables us to know that he will judge us justly and accord to us the precious blood of Jesus. It's all we have, but it's more than enough. And all the beauty of his coming and all the beauty of a holy city, the new Jerusalem, which time hasn't even permitted us to scratch the surface of, but you can look at for yourself and we'll attend to in subsequent weeks. All the beauty of these things will be our portion for eternity. All the things that we long to be gone, anger and argument and hatred and fear, all of these things, they will be gone in that day, in his presence. There won't even be any more night. What are you longing for? And because of that, what are you preparing for? Let's pray for a moment, shall we? Lord God, even in a a momentary inventory of our lives, if we just consider ourselves, just, just just for a second, we recognize according to the leadership of your word and the conviction of your spirit that in both longing and in preparation, we have far to go. Lord God, we want to recognize something else. We recognize that we don't stir up a longing by hype, by being cajoled or bullied into it, nor do we prepare as though it's some toil or drudgery, preparing because we have to. No. In both longing and preparation, we are entirely dependent upon the work of the cross. And so, God, we would invite your grace to us. Where our longings are weak, where our desires are half-hearted, 
where they've been diverted and distracted by temporal things that are simply meant to awaken our desires to the truest desire of all, to you, God, where our longings need, God, to be recalibrated, reoriented, where our longings might need to completely be made new. Would you apply the blood of Jesus Christ to us, dear God? Would you be gracious to us? Would you not take your spirit from us? But would you create in us clean hearts and renew within us right spirits? Cause us to long for you again. Cause our hearts to beat and beat more quickly for you. Quicken our spirits, God. Enliven us with the promise of what is to come. We know that we depend on you for this. Grant to us the good sense and the humility to surrender our longings to you. And God, where we consider our preparedness, when we look at how it is that we're spending our time, our energy, our money, the things that we're thinking upon, the things that we're consuming, we recognize perhaps that they're not actually preparing us for your coming. They're just distracting us. Preparing us perhaps for a world which is passing away. What senses are in that? When we recognize these things again, God, we would invite your grace. Forgive us for these sins, God. Cleanse us from that kind of unrighteousness and prompt us. Prompt us to set our minds on things above. Where you are. And where indeed we are spiritually and soon will be in every which way. God, I pray that we would be people who are preparing for your coming. And Lord Jesus, not only this, but grant us the grace to help in the preparations for our neighbours and our friends. God, those preparations, they're likely to begin in prayer. We can't force anybody. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we can even speak to them or or nothing seems to be getting through. But God, bring us to our knees that we might help our neighbours and our friends, our families, our loved ones to prepare also for your coming. Grant us opportunity to bring that prepared word to them, Lord God, that they might surrender, that they might bow the knee to you and invite your saving grace into their lives. God, we want to see everyone everywhere preparing for you, Jesus. God, we recognize that if your presence means the absence of fear or death or pain or hatred or horror, then preparing for it means that these things would diminish in our world also. God, as we orient ourselves, we pray, God, that around about us we might see something of your kingdom come. Do this work in our lives, we pray. Just for a moment or two, offer your life to Christ. Invite him to fix your longing upon him.